Revelations chapter 3, verse 20. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Amen. You can be seated. I'm good. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> Remember last week how I told you guys, like, we, we got this teaching stand so I could see, like, my eyes are getting bad, and the other one was too low. Remember how I told you that? So, had my eyes checked this weekend, and I ordered uh, bifocals. It's, it's just happening. It's happening. Oh, entropy. So. <laughs> All right. So here we go. We've set aside several Sundays, four Sundays actually, to uh, reflect on four things that the church does when it's in the room that the church meets in. So not just this church, but every church all over the world. Uh, when the churches huddle up and get in their rooms on Sundays, these four different things that we do and we've been doing ever since the church began. And the four things are a bit odd to anyone who's outside of the church culture. We've talked about that. They're simply odd because primarily because they're old. Uh, They're very, very old behaviors that the church has done, again, from the start, and some of them even predate uh, the existence of the church. Uh, But they're original. They are original to the Jesus communities of the first century and and have been a part of the church rhythms ever since. And on the surface, they seem quite simple. We talked about baptism, what that means, what that looks like, and so on. We talked about the Bible last week. Next week, we'll talk about prayer, all these things we do together uh, in this room. And then today, we'll talk about the communion and kind of the guiding text for us is this little description in the book of Acts. Luke talks about the early church saying, "So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that uh, that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers." Let's say the breaking of bread together. The breaking of bread. That's going to be the thing that we zero in on uh, today. Now, the thing about each of these things that you see on the screen, baptism. The scriptures, the teachings, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, they're all things that we actually do. Those are things that we participate in. And when we do them, they're kind of there to remind us of our collective identity, not as individuals, but as a collective identity, that we're all apprentices of Jesus, be, be, be it strong or weak or trying to catch up or even running ahead of Jesus. We're all apprentices of Jesus, And when the church, again, all over the world huddles up in its rooms like this, it participates in these things as a way of reflecting on and revisiting uh, our calling and our shape as the people of God. And it's just good for us to come back around probably every year and just look at these things and to, uh, and, and to talk about and reflect on their meanings. Today, though, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about uh, the communion, the Eucharist. Uh, some call it the Mass, the, uh, the Lord's Supper, whatever phrase, it's all, it's, it's all equally good there. When I was a kid, like a teenager, we would break into the church kitchen and eat the communion bread because it was homemade and it was so good. It was like different than any other bread we'd ever had and we knew where they kept it, like in those big walk-in refrigerators and we would go in there uh, with the youth pastor and we would dig around in the big Tupperware things and eat the bread. It was, I mean, 
it's so terrible, I think about it now, like we would just sit in the church kitchen, you know, with the big cutting table board and there's just a bowl of communion bread and we're just, not only are we skipping youth group, we're eating the communion bread uh, out of the thing. But so I, I remember that as a kid. And, uh, but you know, someone told me at one point, like, that's man, so hell is gonna be good for you. Like that's, <laughs> so it just kind of got me thinking, like what is this thing that we do every Sunday with the bread and the juice and so on? And it may be the oddest thing in the set, to be honest. It's part, it's the part of our gathering where, and we'll do this at the end today, where we line up in a few lines and you know, we look around at everybody and then we walk forward and we're served a piece of bread and some juice and then we leave. So the questions are like, what is this? Like, what is this thing? What am I doing when I do this? What does it mean to do this? What does it mean when we all do this together? Um, so I want to spend a few minutes like doing some history because I know you really enjoy that. And uh, <laughs> so we'll start there and then we'll move through what this, what this means. I want to say this from the start that the church... Originally, the church was first a meal. Nobody ate the church, but the church life was essentially a meal. Now, we have no evidence of special buildings like church buildings for churches until the third century. And even then, it's a little sketchy. What was most common and most often the case, it really almost exclusively, was that these early Jesus communities called ecclesias met in homes that were big enough to house a lot of people. That's where the church met in its infancy and for many, many years. It just met in homes. Here's a great little ending, uh, a a couple of verses from the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. He's doing his greetings. I love the end of his letters because he just does the shout outs. But this is one of them. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that meets in their what? So Prisca and Aquila had a big house, right? And who's gonna name their kid Prisca? Who's gonna do it? Who's gonna go there? That's just an awesome name. Uh, Also called Priscilla, but because I know some of you Bible people are like, ah, he's got that wrong. But um, (laughs) just letting you know that I know that you know that I know. Okay. (laughs) But it's, a, it's an interesting sort of just thing. Paul just puts it in his letter and he's greeting people. I mean, it's nothing, it's nothing, you know, there's nothing to learn from this other than, so the church met in their home. They gathered together in their home and that was pretty standard across the board. And central to those gatherings was this meal. It was a shared meal, sometimes called the common meal. Historically, it appears that the meal was essentially the reason the church gathered. It was the thing people came together to do. And even in the letters that we have in our New Testament, we can find the meals being referred to as love feasts or agape feasts. These agape meals, this love-oriented sharing of food. And these meals were rooted in some pretty far-reaching social and spiritual ideas, and we'll get to those in a moment. But it's important to picture the historical scene Uh, to get a picture of the historical scene in order for all of us to understand what it means when we take the bread and we take the juice. So let me just run through a couple things real quick. On the night before Jesus died, he celebrated what was called the Passover meal with his disciples and his friends. Now the Passover meal was and is still one of the three main feasts on the Jewish calendar. And for Jesus, it fell on the eve of his death. 
which is one reason we perhaps have associated the communion with a time of sorrow and reflection. The Passover meal was tied to the Exodus event. So the Exodus event is that historical piece of Israel's past, historical and past, the same thing, sorry. Um, Where am I? See, this is why I need the glasses. I ordered the glasses. And the frames are boss. You're going to love them. Okay, all right. So, uh, where am I? Oh, the, the story, it's the Exodus story is the story of Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt. And the meal, the Passover meal, was a way of remembering that event, which meant that it was a way of remembering God's faithfulness to deliver and free his people from what enslaves them. Now, it was a commanded meal. God instructed uh, Moses to hold his people to this meal year after year after year. So every year, the Israelites would gather around tables with friends and families and even outsiders to their nation and eat this meal as a way of remembering the story of God delivering his people. Now, the meal was very scripted. You ate and drank certain things at certain times during the meal. And the host of the meal would walk you through it. And each part was connected to a piece of the Exodus story. So everything you ate and drank had a connection to an event or a series of events in the Exodus story. So to eat the Passover meal was to essentially reenact the event, but also to reconnect to the event as well. It was a way of participating in the past. And part of the structure of the meal included the blessing of the bread and then the breaking of the bread and then the drinking of the cup the wine at the meal. And it was at this Passover meal that Jesus, what we would say, instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper. But he took the bread, again, normal part of the meal, and he broke the bread, and he said something interesting. He said, this is my body. And then he broke it, and he gave it to them to eat. And then later in the meal, he ended the meal with the cup that everyone drinks from and says, this, is, this cup is the blood of my new covenant, of the new covenant with you, of the new contractual relationship with you. And it is a very interesting sort of thing to say uh, when you pick up a cup and say that to the people at the table. You just try that today at lunch. It's a little weird. But Jesus was connecting his life and work and his eventual death and resurrection to this new kind of exodus event, one that was rooted in the freedom from all the things that enslave us, And to keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's grace and his relationship with us. There's all these things that get in the way and enslave us from experiencing those things. Forgiveness and renewal was possible. And it would come through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And then it would be celebrated at his resurrection. Now so you know, because you're probably tilting your head as well, the disciples didn't get it either. He said those things, and they just were all like, Jesus says things. I mean, it's just weird. We don't, we don't always know what he's saying. So if you were tilting your heads, you're in good company. They were completely lost, too. Now, that says something about some of you who wonder if you're allowed to take communion. The very first communion service that we have was given and received in complete confusion and doubt. But there's something else here, too. The whole ministry of Jesus really can be traced through the meals that he had with people. I mean, a quick read through the gospel narratives 
reveals one thing, and that's that Jesus loved to eat. And he loved to eat with all sorts of people. If you just take Luke's account of Jesus' life, you will find yourself in and out of people's homes where Jesus shared meals with them, and you will find that every single story of Jesus sharing a meal with people, again, in Luke's account, carries a social and spiritual problem, and it's simply this, that Jesus was eating with all the wrong people, sinners and tax collectors and the like. He was just not eating with the right people. And the disciples of Jesus experienced those very meals with him. They had an up-close view of this social experiment that Jesus was doing. And what they learned, something that has carried over into the life of the first church, was that the Jesus community would be built in relationships between strangers and former enemies and social classes that had never before shared a table together. So there was a spiritual component to communion that it reminded the early church of the Passover meal that the disciples shared with Jesus on the night before his death and how that meal reminds them of the freedom from sin that comes through Christ. But there was also this social component that the table of God had an endless amount of extensions and leaves, and it just kept growing and growing and that everyone was and still is invited to sit at God's table. We also know from church history that the meal was also a way for the church to feed the poor. That communion was a, a conduit for feeding those who were in need. However, what's interesting is by the end of the seventh century, these weekly feasts disappeared from the church gathering. And by the end of the eighth century, meals were no longer part of the Western church. In fact, tables themselves were banned from the meeting houses. They were, in fact, outcasted in that respect. And all that was left behind was the ritual of the bread and the wine that we have today. The meal originally was a celebration of the resurrection. We were talking about this in the lobby. My friend Joel and I, one of our teaching team members, we were just... We always talk theology in the lobby as you people are passing through and we nod. But um, we were talking about how like N.T. Wright, one of our favorite theologians, says, uh, he's like, man, we spend all this time in Lent, like leading up to Easter and we just feel terrible. And then we give Easter like a week. He's like, if there's one time in the church when you should fall over drunk, it's the resurrection. Like you should be really excited about the resurrection. Nobody's getting that. Okay. No, we cannot be excited. But the church, like originally, these meals were celebratory. But over time, the contemplative sorrow of the cross replaced the joy of the resurrection. And the communion became something really serious. The tables were removed and people just lined up quietly. But here's the thing about that. No story, no table in the Old Testament or the New Testament is burdened with sadness. The table is this metaphor all throughout scripture of God inviting people to sit with him in joy and in peace, in celebration. To sit with him at his table is always a joyful tone. And it reminds us that we are welcomed with his grace and mercy. That is the announcement that the communion, the Eucharist, the mass, the Lord's Supper originally made. Because a meal is an announcement, is it not? 
When you eat with people, it says something about who you are. The meal makes an announcement. I don't know if you've experienced this. Maybe you are this couple. But there's always the couple, and they're, they're always older, and they've been married for 100 years, and um, 50, 50 years. And you're at the restaurant, and they're, they're not talking to each other. Have you seen this couple? They're just sitting there. Reading, they're reading the paper, she's reading the book, or, but they don't talk. And like every time my wife and I go out to eat, we find this couple, like they always sit near us, and we just stare at, we're not talking either because we're just staring at this couple. <laughs> and it's just like, wow. And I know that it's just, I, I, I don't want to say too much because maybe when I'm that age, I'll run out of things to say, and like that's probably what it is. They're just like, there's just nothing to say to you anymore. And, uh, but it makes me nervous too because like if I'm out to eat with, my wife and like there's 15 seconds of nothingness I in my head I'm like uh oh uh oh uh oh say something fill the space you know uh how you feeling you already asked me that Derek okay sorry and you know but I worry I worry that like that's what ends up but like you you look at those couples and you think the announcement that they're making is we just hate each other that's what it looks like I don't want to talk to her we're just stuck with each other we're just roommates this is terrible That's the announcement it makes, kind of. And everybody jokes about it. And so the thing about the meal, the thing about the church meal, the Eucharist, the communion, the Mass, the Lord's Supper, it does make an announcement. But the announcement that it's been making for centuries is that there's no fun. There's no fun in God's house. You cannot laugh. You cannot smile. You cannot enjoy this. It's a time to feel bad about yourself. It's a time to remember that Jesus died for you because you're terrible. And that's supposed to make you feel better somehow. And I think the early church would look at us and go, what are you doing? That's not why we did this. We did this to celebrate the resurrection. It's not an altar. The altar is the cross on which Christ died. The table is the party where we celebrate the resurrection. And the Eucharist is an announcement of a new kind of family that Christ has built and continues to build. One where all sorts of people are involved and where the bond between everyone is the story of God's grace in their lives. And that's worth celebrating. And when we do this every Sunday, we're announcing a lot of things. But the most important being that everyone is invited to sit at God's table and enjoy his presence to sit with him and enjoy who he is. Everybody, all people are invited. That is the announcement that it makes, and it's, it's a joyous one. Uh, I hesitate to tell this story, but like millions of Americans, I too watched the GOP debate the other night. <laughs> is this where he tells us who he votes for? No. Because Jon Stewart's not running. But... So my son and I sat on the couch and we watched this, and we really only watched it for the one reason. Um, and it, it came through. I mean, it was, it, it was great. But here's the thing. I had Twitter open at the same time. I was just sort of watching the feed move quickly because I kind of wanted to see what my friends were saying because I have some funny friends. And, uh, you know, and it was flying through, and... Um, as each candidate spoke, there would be something, you know, that pops up. But I was a bit 
I, I'm serious when I say this. I was a bit troubled by the number of pastors, not just Christians, but people who lead congregations, who were just railing on their participants. Because it's kind of cool now to be a pastor and liberal. I mean, like, it's just so cool now. And people were just railing on them. And, and I'm not talking about, like, uh, like, solid, objective observations regarding policies or stances around this or that. There's nothing like that. I'm talking about the lunchroom behavior of a middle schooler where they just hurl insults and criticisms really just to appear taller and stronger and more fearless than they really are. That's all it was. It was just like, and I won't even repeat, but it's just like, I can't believe you just said that about a person, you know, regardless of what you think of them or their policies and whatever. But it just really troubled by just the number of pastors that just felt like they had to do that. And here's why that matters to me, and it should matter to you. It matters in this one major way, and it's simply this, that our churches, every church, by the way, our churches are filled with people who are not like-minded. And they're not like-minded when it comes to politics. At least that's the way the church should be. And when we raise our voice in like this subjective insult, we're communicating that our churches are for people who only think like us and damned be those who don't. And it's really just arrogance is really all it is. And here's the thing that troubled me the most because we'll do this in a moment, but all the lines for communion this Sunday will be stacked with people who disagree on things like abortion, gay marriage, the war, taxes, transportation bills, our lines will be filled with people who don't see eye to eye on those things. Unless, of course, we don't want that scenario in our buildings. We can do that. We can put a sign on the door and go, this is who belongs in here and this is who doesn't, and that'll take care of that. If we'd rather just serve the bread and the wine to those who walk in step with our opinions on fading earthly kingdoms, then so be it. Or we could be the place, the one place in town where all sides have a seat at the table. And if we could do that, then maybe, just maybe, the head of the table will have the final say. And for that moment in time, we have all focus on a different kingdom. Because anything that we think is so important here, it will fade. And the church, is, the church is really a place where people, and this is, I'm going back in history here, the church is really a place where people share a meal with an earshot of a system that says, you can't be together. You have nothing in common. Rowan Williams says it this way, for a short time when we gather as God's guests at God's table, the church becomes what it is meant to be, a community of strangers who have become guests together and are listening to the invitation of God. Let me just close with a couple things. Uh, this summer, we went back to one service and uh, honestly loved it. And to like, it was kind of like the, the magician. He kind of throws things over here to keep you from over here. So we thought, well, maybe they won't like one service, so we'll add brunches. <laughs> so we, that was sort of our thing. Like, hey, look over here, we got food. And, uh, <laughs> and it turned out that after a couple of those, we really, really loved them. And as it turns out, I was sort of working on this. And we kind of got in a round table as a staff team, and I just said, uh, 
I kind of think we should keep things the way they are. Not, not because it's easy, because that's actually not all that easy, but there's something, there's something core to about, about sitting together at a table and sharing a meal together. And so that's why we made the decision, if you get our emails, just, we're just going to hold this schedule as long as we can. And because for us, it's so, it, the first brunch that we had in this room, by the way, it was completely clunky and chaotic. I mean, okay, move the chairs. And it was like, that didn't work out well at all. We're rolling tables in. But I went home like not feeling bad about how unprofessional it was. Because that's not the point. The point is that we all pitch in and we all grab a part of the table and we all pull up our chair and we sit down with people who we know and don't know and we just look at each other and go, so this is church. Tell me about your life. Tell me your story. Tell me your history. Who are you? There was one table that was so so interesting. Like we had all the 15 tables in the room and one table ended up being all these people who were uh, getting their PhDs and they didn't really know each other. We're just like, how does that happen? I mean, they could have sat anywhere and yet they're learning about each other. I was getting emails that whole next week going, keep doing this. And so we're like, okay, of course we'll keep doing that. That's why it's really important for us to share the meal. That is communion. When we are chaotic after service and we're throwing chairs to the side and bringing in tables, that is communion. So we're just holding it. So sign up for the next ones in three weeks. Uh, Many of you, I'm assuming that many of you, most of you, did not grow up in what we call the Christian church, Churches of Christ tradition. Uh, That's the building you're in, by the way. And I say that because it's the Deep South and it's hardly, we we have a little showing here. There's not a lot of us here. In fact, our church is the only Christian church of, of that tradition in the city limits of Atlanta. And there are only three inside the perimeter, one of which is actually selling their property and moving to Noonan, uh, the South Rim. And the other church, the other remaining Christian church is the one that we started two years ago in East Point. So, I mean, there's just not a lot of us here. And so maybe you've wondered what it is and where it came from or whatever, but it's not, it's not actually a really old tradition. It has its roots in like the Second Great Awakening, kind of on the frontier uh, as people were moving through the Midwest, late 18th, early 19th century, uh, and the movement was essentially just, it's kind of a collective movement of people trying to return to a simple Christianity without the barriers and the boundaries of denominational names and creeds and divisions. That was like the whole thing. Every generation has this kind of reformation, and that was America's. And there's all these great stories of, you know, none of those people, by the way, left their churches. They just sought out unity among believers. Like just forget about the name, forget about the denomination, forget about all the things that we've created that get in the way of our relationship uh, with Christ. And let's just be one body. Let's be one church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's kind of our, that's kind of our story, at least in its infancy, like just this kind of, and we come from like uh, the Methodist tradition and the Presbyterian tradition or whatever. And I remember taking a, I took a grad class at uh, Columbia Theological Seminary. It's a Presbyterian seminary. And they were doing the intros in the class. And they were like, tell us your name, what church tradition you're from. And everybody was, of course, Presbyterian. And I said, uh, I said well, I'm Derek and uh, from the Christian Church, Churches of Christ. And the professor, because, you know, we kind of split from the Presbyterian Church. And the professor was like, 
you know, just like, nice to have you. So, um, but anyway, what was I saying? Oh, and so part of that process was trying to return as best as the church could to the early practices of the church, to do Bible things in Bible ways is kind of a phrase. And so this, this is why we baptize in a certain way, because that's how they did it in the New Testament. And this is why we, do, this is why we have elders, because they did that in the New Testament. This is why we don't have a denominational headquarters, because they didn't have one in the New Testament. This is why we're just kind of a locally led church, because that's how they did it. I mean, it was just, we're kind of like tied to that ideal. And one of the things that made the cut, of course, was communion. What's interesting is that one of the early thinkers and voices of the movement, uh, his name was Alexander Campbell, they asked him if he could design his own church building, what would it look like? And he's like, I would just get rid of the pews and it would be a giant table. No pulpit, just a table. And we would sit at the table. That The table was central. The preaching and everything else around it is secondary. The table is the thing that we gather for. So I just, whether you're, know our story or not, that's, kind of, that's the ideals that we come from. It's like, let's just do the things the way the church did them in the beginning. And that keeps traditions from getting in the way. And ours is a tradition that keeps traditions at arm's length. And there are definitely issues with that ideal, I know that. But its best intention was unity, keeping divisions in check, all those things that separate us in worship and in community. But we kept the Holy Communion. We kept it intact. It made the cut. And that act of the bread and the juice, it gives voice to the unity of God's people and it remains central to our church's language. And let it always be so that when we come together on Sundays, that we're sharing this meal, even though it's really just symbolic at this point in history, let it remind you and me that this is a celebration of a new thing that God is doing. I love what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And I'm drawn to the word anyone. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I just love that the language of the table is the thing that articulates the relationship we have, not just with Christ, but with his mission in the world, with our church as a church family. And it makes that announcement that we'll just keep pulling chairs up and anyone and everyone can come. And so as we close today, I'm gonna ask our servers to come on up. Uh, we'll, We'll close with communion as we do each week. But perhaps today you sort of move through the lines with a different, spirit, a different understanding of what it is, it's okay to say hey to someone as you walk by them. It's okay to give someone a hug. It's okay to smile. I hope that you smile. It's okay to enjoy this. The first time we did it this way, we, of course, did the debrief uh, the week after, and people were like, what did you think of the communion? I was like, eh, it was a little clunky and chaotic, but that was perfect, because that's what it should be. We're a family. And when we eat this bread and drink this juice, it reminds us of that, but it also reminds us of the joy that comes with the grace and the mercy of God and, of course, the resurrection. And so if you would, please stand and we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. 
And then after that, you can make your way to one of the three stations. The one in the middle, by the way, just has the cups if you prefer, just the, the, uh, the personal cup. And then we also have a, a gluten-free option in the middle as well. But the others, you'll take the bread and dip into the juice as well. Let's say these words together that Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.